picked me up in one of his lectures and um, decided he wanted to teach me. And the groping came from there. But of course, although I disliked it, I could have stopped going to him at any time, but I wanted to go on learning from him. Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name is Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by a distinguished guest in an attempt to find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into their core beliefs to understand a little better who they are and what they're on about. Bearing her soul in the stall this week is the distinguished philosopher and ethicist Mary Warnock. First, perhaps, um, just tell me about your way, your the home in which you grew up, and and the sort of, as it were, what values you might have you might have yeah. imbibed from that uh, <laughs> yes. from that upbringing. Um, well, I suppose um, my father died. Um, before I was born, so I, I never knew him. And but my mother um, was um, came of a Jewish family called Schuster, and they originally came from came over to Manchester from Frankfurt. They were in the cotton industry, and she. Um, so I grew up as the youngest of a largest family, and there were two. I was myself and a sister, two years older than me, and then there'd, there'd been a boy who died, and there was a big gap. So there was my family was divided into the, my brother and two sisters whom we called the big ones. Right. And then there was a gap, and then there was me and my sister, who was two years older than me, but we were absolutely as thick as thieves. Right. And uh, remained so until she died. So she and I were completely... Um, we did everything together. And I... She was much more... It was the most, in a way, the most important figure in our lives was our nanny... Ah. Who um, looked after all fierce. of the children. Was she been fierce? there for ages. And Nanny much preferred my sister Stefana, the one near me, to me. And rightly so. I mean, I didn't mind that because I thought she was absolutely right. She was, <laughs> she was a very... <laughs> well, this sister was a very, very engaging child. She was very talkative, very bright very funny and very enterprising. And I tagged along behind her always. And so I think I had an extraordinarily happy childhood. And was your nanny one of those, like, Norland nannies with those sorts of, you know, pretty old-fashioned values? She wasn't a Norland nanny. She was... She she was um, not a trained nanny at all. She I was, see. A, but she left school when she was thirteen, I think, or maybe even younger. She lived in a village, um, and she was just the most marvelous person. You couldn't possibly be bored in her company. She she was interested in everything, and she made sure we were interested in everything, and. Um, she just kept us going. So this was a joyous 
this was a joyous family. But was there, I mean, you say your mother was Jewish. Did any of that, would, would she, she, there was any sort of... She wasn't, uh, she wasn't completely Jewish, she was half Jewish. I see. Her, um, I don't think any of them. But presumably they were not she would have... They were not practising Jews. They be converted to Christianity um, for purely practical reasons because at the time in Frankfurt there were very few decent parts of the city where Jews could live. So they became Christians so they could choose what house they lived in. I see, lived I see, in. I see. I um, see. So it wasn't later on that any of the family were caught up in the Holocaust or...? Oh, no, no. No, nothing at all like that. Um, and the, this, you so, your, so the way you describe it in glowing terms, your childhood, what do you think, um, in terms of the sort of values of the, of, uh, the, the, that you sort of developed as a child, can it, is it possible to, to speak of what they might be? Um, well, no, I think it's very difficult. My mother, well, the whole family, were tremendously interested in reading. I mean, we were surrounded with boxes on all sides. So I suppose that's a value. Um, and our nanny was um, extremely punctilious about um, our manners. So that was a value. We, we, um, <laughs> rudeness was terrible right. and um, all sorts of things are counted as rude um, particularly interrupting people which I still value very highly not not interrupting well, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> that's put me in my spot as an interviewer <laughs> I'd better let you go on when you start <laughs> um, and of course, I suppose the greatest value was in education. Yeah. Um, my brother, partly, of course, because he was the only surviving male person in the, in the whole family, um, but partly because he was, in fact, really bright, was regarded as a kind of hero. Um, and he was a scholar at Winchester, and we lived in Winchester, but he went to board at Winchester. And um, that was the year my father died, or I, I think, yes, it was. And then he went down to Balliol in Oxford, and he read classical mods and, and greats. And I knew from a very early age but that's what I was going to do as well. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about your time at university. At university? Mm. We're skipping on very fast. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, well, it was in, divided into two parts. I, I did mods, classical honour mods, um, which takes um, five terms. And it was in, I started that in 1942, so I, I um, did mods in 1944, and then I left for two terms because one couldn't at that stage spend four years in Oxford. One could spend only three, and I wanted to do 
proper grapes. So I came down and taught for two years and then came back again in 1946. And your passion for philosophy is growing from the books and then through, uh, through your time at Oxford? Um, well, I was, yes, I was passionate about the honour mods bit, which has nothing to do with philosophy, which is just literature and um, language and literature. And so I didn't, I did do a special subject in mods uh, in Aristotle's logic. I didn't really start doing philosophy until 1946. And even then I was completely unsure whether I wanted to be a Greek historian or a philosopher. I wasn't, I didn't have a passion for philosophy at all, really. So what, was there something that excited it in the end that, 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 that... Uh... Yes, because I was going to get married to another philosopher and it seemed to be convenient. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing everything you can. I'm trying to try and... It's very interesting because I always, I, I think you always fancy that there's going to be some sort of, this sort of like, I don't know, some St. Paul moment yeah. where you where you suddenly read something and you stand up and you say, this is just amazing and I'm going to <laughs> devote my life to this. And not the story the story is not like that, is it? <laughs> well, no, because when I was just trying to decide whether I liked, whether I wanted to be a Greek historian or a philosopher, because I knew I wanted to stay academic, it was literally a matter of convenience. I thought we'd all we'd share our books, we'd be able to talk about our subject, we'd share our pupils, which all turned out to be true. So it was very convenient getting married to another philosopher. Whereas if I'd been a Greek historian, it would have been a different thing altogether. And anyway, I by then decided I wasn't really at all scholarly. And a Greek historian has to be very scholarly. That's, by the way, that's just completely not true if you're listening to that in terms of <laughs> scholarly. You're very scholarly. No, not scholarly. I didn't think I am. Scholarly really? means rarely being good at um, pursuing tiny points. Um, I see. Which I think involves a lot of research. And I don't think research is what I've ever done. Well, Mary Midgley, um, who just recently passed yes. away. She said when she left Oxford, um, she went up to Newcastle. Yes. The thing that she that she wanted to escape from is that philosophy had become a sort of a game of chess almost, a sort of mind, a sort of a, a sort of little game of logic chopping in Oxford. And she's ended up despising it and wanting uh, philosophy to relate to life. Does that? Yes. Does that? Uh, does that feel? true to your experience of the place as well? Well, I loved the logic chopping. Ah. I liked, I enjoyed the tiny points. And I was a, a tremendous admirer of um, J.L. Austin, John Austin, whom Mary Midgley probably didn't admire particularly, but both Geoffrey and I greatly admired him. And... Um, that kind of small points, making small points and making sure you got them right um, was the kind of philosophy that I did, I did enjoy. Um, and is that why perhaps it's fair to say that you've always been slightly suspicious of the philosophy that makes sort of grand 
sweeping. When you say slightly suspicious, you know, <laughs> doing it. I lose it. Right. Uh, one of the worst things I ever had to do <laughs> was um, make myself read um, French existentialist philosophy. Oh, Sartre or... Yes. Um, and the reason I had to do that was that the Oxford University Press wanted to bring out a, a book on um, moral philosophy since 1900. And they asked Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, I'm not, I don't think they asked Mary Midgley, but Iris Murdoch, they asked all those three the people team. to <laughs> write this book. All three of them refused. Uh -huh. And so in the end, I, I was asked to do it because it was generally thought that moral philosophy was pretty tedious and definitely a woman's subject oh, rather God, than a, right? a man's subject. So that's how I came to write the first book I wrote, which was Oxford, uh, which was moral philosophy since 1900. And um, I did, I quite enjoyed, well, I greatly enjoyed writing that book, actually. Um, so what have you, what have you just, it's very interesting, this, what have you got against the sort of, the big, you know, with people, meta-narrative and all that sort of stuff, the big story philosophy? Well, I don't think um, I like any subject for which the question of evidence doesn't arise. And so, I mean, I would have been quite a good historian, I think. I believe in evidence. A I would scientist. have been a reasonable scientist because I believe in evidence. And I think I detest any subject where the question of evidence just doesn't come up at all. And so if you are going to make a huge metaphysical theory of some kind, you've just got to like it or make it sound interesting but you cannot produce evidence for its truth. So there's quite a lot of philosophy in the history of philosophy that you you read through and you're sort of, you, you just don't, don't have much time for. Kant and, you know, Leibniz and I suppose going well, all the way the, back the to history Plato. Of philosophy does interest me enormously. And in fact, in Oxford, it seems to me, um, what we teach under the heading of philosophy is actually the history of philosophy because what one gets on pupils to read is um, Hume and Kant and whoever else. But um, And I do find that incredibly interesting. And the history of ideas in general is, I think, what I would say was my subject rather than... I've never done any original thinking in my life. I, I just am interested in the history of ideas. One of the things that, uh, that I, I was reading an interview with you by Andrew Brown, who writes for The Guardian, and he described you as a philosophical plumber. <laughs> and he said, actually, you were a philosophical plumber to the establishment. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I, I see what he means. I, I sort of it was a it was a tidy line. Yes, um, they, they there call is a sort, me in when they need yes, <laughs> but the, 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 the plumbing's there is a sort of idea of of a sort of philosophy which is there to to unblock the plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or, or mend the leaks. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and that's the sort of philosophy that you 
that you oh, yeah, I think it's the most wonderful description, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I accept it. I take it on. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been very useful in terms of, I mean, that's that sort of philosophy where evidence-based and, uh, and, and concerned with sort of a particular sort of remit, I guess, yes. has, has been why you've been able to take that particular philosophical approach into education and biology and That's all the other right. things that you're yes, interested yes. in. And um, the other person who I think is famous for doing that was actually a, briefly a, a pupil of mine, though she wasn't in my college, and that's Honora O'Neill. Yes. And she's another plumber of the same kind. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> but would, would your nanny have just called it clever common sense? Yes. Yes. Or just common sense. Or just common sense. <laughs> so, what have you? What? What? Uh, in terms of your in terms of your career, what what have been your proudest uh, achievements? Do you think? Uh, well, the only things I've ever said to myself, gosh, I did that really uh, about it is the. Um, the work on IVF and um, the, that legislation. Um, but I think, I do feel that I did contribute to that. And I, I think that it was quite well done in the sense that the legislation has, has stuck, really. Things like the 14-day rule, where you may not keep an embryo alive in the laboratory for more than 14 days, and the penalty for doing so is 10 years in prison. Um, that rather severe um, bit of legislation has really lasted very well. And I know people are now thinking they'd like to extend it, but I hope they won't, actually. But um, that, I do think, was something that I did, although... I think what people forget about reports like that report on IVF and so on, um, on human fertilisation, people forget what an enormously important part the civil servants play in that because they rarely decide before we even start to talk, before the committee starts to talk, the civil servants decide what are the topics that are going to be covered. And the first paper that one gets from the civil service is really the most important thing. On they the frame whole. the discussion, don't they? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And the whole thing is built up from that. <clears throat> You're someone who hasn't been afraid to take your philosophical training into, into new areas, into areas that are contested, uh, into areas that uh, I suppose where scientific progress... Um, has raised all sorts of new questions and so mm. forth. So I'm 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 very interested to know. You know, you you obviously um, are in sympathy with a sort of broad sense of progress um, that uh, the scientific revolution and and I suppose I suppose what I'm getting around to asking you is about the electronic and digital uh, revolutions and so yes, forth. Yes, so I'm. Very much at sea <laughs> in that area. I would never be able to take any sort of intelligent part in talking about electronic matters as I 
could in biological matters. Um, I'm just, I suppose the reason I ask it is because for me, uh, one of the things that I value about so much of what you've done is that you've, I mean, stood up for sort of civilised, intelligent conversation. Mm. And we live in an age now where that's actually often in short supply, often uh, in the media, but I says in public life more generally, yes. where the voices are shriller and angrier and yes. um, people talk past each other, interrupt and all the rest of it. <laughs> yes, interrupting, you see, it's terrible. And I, I do think, I, I entirely agree with you, I think there's something really horrible about the way people communicate now. I mean, when people send messages to one another um, rather than talking to them, I, I, I find that very depressing. And social media is not something I imagine that you've, you're a part of, but you're aware of the way in which on Twitter and and Facebook and so forth, the, the sort of the way in which people argue with that sure is, is That's quite... right, yes. Um, I, I would find it very difficult now to live without the internet, but that's a different thing. Yes. That's all I use in a way of... I mean, my computer is essential to me but not this way of communicating at all. One of the things I'd, I've heard you uh, say, uh, or ask anyway, is uh, the question about whether morality needs defending these days, whether we need standing up for in some ways, which makes me think that on some level there must be an anxiety within you that something's been lost. Um. Yes. I don't know what I think about that, really. Um, it seems to me that in, um, in human contact in general, um, morality goes on because it's absolutely essential and we couldn't do without it. We couldn't do without being able to trust people to on the whole, tell the truth, usually. On the whole, um, want to do good or not to do harm. And that just is part of human intercourse, it seems to me. And so I don't think, I don't worry that morality is going to come to an end. I just don't think it could. Because human society couldn't, couldn't get on couldn't without it. Couldn't survive without it, no, no. As long as people go on um, talking to one another and living in the same area of one another and um, interacting with, with one another, then I think there's no possibility that there'd be no morality. But there's a sort of... I mean, it, I suppose that's why I was talking about intelligent, civilised mm. speech, is that in a world without people talking to each other, as you just mm. describe, or when speech itself is corrupted with anger and division mm. and divisiveness, um, mm. then that part of a sense that we share something in common that's terribly important seems to sort of break down. Yes. Um, one thing that I, I simply fail to understand and share everybody else's horror of is the... Um, readiness with which people 
bring out their knives and stab one another now. This does seem to me to be a, constitute a breakdown of morality, actually. And it is so incredibly swiftly growing. I, I, I find it very, very hard to understand this. I, I, the reason I raise that is, is that um, I read in your memoir mm. a very interesting thing that I suppose it relates to the Me Too movement now, is that when you were at university, you had a tutor that had wandering hands. Yeah. And, you know, was, was he described as a serial groper? Now, yeah. in, now, one of the things you said about him is that actually I learnt a great deal from this oh, man. This is... and, and, and you sort of, it felt like you forgave him for the advances that he well, made. Well, the thing, that I was, it was a very curious situation because he wasn't a tutor exactly. He was a professor. He shouldn't have been tangling with undergraduates at all. But um, he picked me up in one of his lectures and um, decided he wanted to teach me. And the groping came from there. But, of course, the fact of the matter is that I, although I disliked it, um, I could have stopped going to him at any time. As I say, he wasn't a tutor of mine or anything. I could just have not come. But I wanted to go on learning from him. And I did. I learned far more from him than I did from anybody else at all. Um, but I can't quite think how we got onto this. <laughs> well, I, I suppose we, we got onto it because I was thinking about the the Me Too movement and, oh, and things. Oh God, I hate it. Oh, do you? Uh, uh. <laughs> but the way in which people would react very differently yes, now but to that sort of moral now situation. Are prepared to think that they're always victims? Why don't they just? go away or hit the person or do something. <laughs> right. I mean, you may ask why I didn't go away from from this marvellous, amazing scholar from whom I learned so much, but the reason was that I just didn't want to. I just wanted to go on learning, and it was incredibly important to me. But this highlights a, a, a difference, I guess, we've got to here. This is, I suppose, the reason I was asking you this yeah. question. It highlights a difference between the way you see the world and mm. the way in which many people see the world today. Yes, I because think I, this is true. Because I think that your reaction would be one that wouldn't be so common these days. And actually, you know, what the Me Too movement has is, you know, would, would, would probably criticise you for saying what it is that you said, you know. Um, yes, yes. I mean, I, I hate the idea. It does mean that women, on the whole... Um, see themselves as <coughs> potential victims and not as um, being in charge of what happens. But uh, why not? There's no one, it seems to me, who can not object to someone who pulls them around or does whatever they, the Me Too people say they do. Why don't they just either go away or tell them to stop. Yes. I mean, there were some people who said that they've been raped, which is obviously an entirely different matter. Yeah. Yes. But I suppose I was using that to illustrate something about the way in which our moral values uh, yeah. have have sort of moved away from the sorts of things that you might uh, think of as, as central. So this sort of, I, I guess, this thing that's called identity politics, where you know, the most important thing morally about me is uh, where I come from or 
or what my sex or gender is or what my skin color is and so forth that, that these are the groups in which we we do our we do what we think as a you know i think as a white man or yeah. i think as a this rather than we just think which i yes. thought is your position yes yes it's perfectly true um and it's very it's depressing in a way because it's another um way of eroding one's individual um selfhood if i can use that expression because you were always putting yourself in a category um of being a white male or a white female or a black etc and and you don't think of yourself as absolutely peculiar absolutely individual and that i think is sad can we talk about god <laughs> Talk about religion. Yeah. Have you? Have you? Is it ever? Is it ever sort of impinged upon you? I mean, I, I always think of you as a very secular presence. Oh but, um... no, um, I was. No, I. I've always um, had a great fondness for religion. Um, I was brought up in Winchester, and I absolutely adored and still adore Winchester Cathedral. It's my haven, really, and I've always absolutely loved the language of the Book of Common Prayer and the St. James's Bible. And I was very much brought up. Well, my school was exceptionally holy, um, so we were always on our knees. And um, But because we didn't have a chapel, I was at school in Winchester, and we didn't have a chapel, so we were always given the choice of which church we went to on Sundays, and I always chose the cathedral, of course, and I always went to the cathedral um, when I was living at home and not at school. So I am really um, soaked through and through with the Church of England, the Anglicanism. But a but a but a Church of England agnostic. Yes, um, atheist. I would say. Oh, a Church of England atheist. <laughs> yeah, it's not the first time that I've been described as that. That great friend of mine, marvelous man, former Bishop of Edinburgh, Richard Holloway. Richard Holloway. Yes, he described me uh, first as a, an atheist Anglican. And I accepted that then. <laughs> <laughs> and the so, thing, yeah, but it's rather, I find this, the question of God, in particular, very interesting because obviously one of the things I'm absolutely fascinated by is the changeover from Judaism to Christianity. You know, accepting that um, Jesus was a Jew and thought of himself as a Jew. Um, and um, was crucified as a Jew. Um, when, what was the process by which Christianity became a religion separate from Judaism? I'm writing about that now, actually. I'm well, writing. Not. I am. I'm writing exactly. On I, that I subject just, I right now, I, I find <laughs> this the most interesting on, question. In I the think world. the answer is St. Paul, really. So yes, this, this I think is probably true. So it's when so St. 
so the 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 Jewish Jesus followers, which were the first, mm. um, you know, Jesus was a Jew, right. as you say. Um, there were some Gentile Jesus yes, followers, yes. and then Paul has to say, well, what you know, should these people be circumcised or mm. can they? Yes, oh, that's right. And, what, and what, should they follow the rules of diet? Should they follow right? the law? Yeah, and so. In the end, it's decided that there can be a sort of two-track thing, mm. which was, you know, Jewish Jesus followers and Gentile Jesus mm. followers. And it just so happens, I think, that uh, Gentile Jesus followers flourish in a Roman world that doesn't like Jews very much. And Jewish Gentile, Jewish Jesus followers are, in fact, eventually attacked from both the synagogue and the church. Mm. And have nowhere to go, so but it becomes an, it's an extraordinary thing that the uh, that a Jewish sort of heresy, as it mm. were, turns into something called Christianity. Yes, and I that's one passage in I always forget whether it's the first or the second epistle of Saint John. I think it's the first um, where he says that. Um, do follow the laws, but but don't forget that the following the law is no good unless you love one another. Right. You know exactly the passage I mean. I do, but I'm because right. it ends up for God is love, and that seems to me the most <clears throat> significant thing. And I think that one of the things that Christianity really didn't take over from. Judaism very successfully was the idea of God, and I think therefore that that if you're a Christian, you don't really need God, you need love, and and that seems to me the most important thing. And this is what was the teaching of Christ, was love, and not, I mean I know he was God the Father and so on, but that was all part of the Jewish tradition, that that. Um, the son of God. So you think there's a sort of, there is a sort of quasi-secularity already in Christianity? If secularity means yes. not believing in God. Yes, OK, yes, so then... that's, the wrong, that's, too, that's the wrong word. That there's a sort of agnosticism or there's a sort of displacement, displacement of the divine. Of God, displacement of God, I think, in Christianity. And this is um, what um, St John was saying in the epistles, when he said, none of this is any good if you don't love one another. And God for is God, love for could God almost is be love. A, And God is, God, God is love could almost be a definition. Exactly. Well, yes, for God is love is what I think is the, is the definition of the Christian God as opposed to the Jewish God. And this is why I think that the Jewish God <laughs> never really... Came over very satisfactorily. Oh, so you, so this is a very interesting position. So you actually think that the uh, Anglican atheist, as it were, is not an is not intellectually eccentric. an outright. It's not an eccentric position. It's actually the core of what it is to be. I was going to slowly to come round to that. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yes, yes. Wow. I think it is. I don't think that God is necessary. You, you don't, I mean, you can say, if you like, and some people do, that you need to suppose that there's a God because God created the world. But I don't think you need to say that. I don't think you need a God, really, 
Is this creator. your um, is this your plumber instinct, your Occam's razory type of dislike of the metaphysical and the grand and the big and the overarching story? I suppose it is, because certainly I wouldn't say that you could find any evidence of the existence of God. So in that way, it would fall under that same heading that we talked about already. Yes. But there's a but the other thing that you've done. You see, you're all, you're a fascinating contradiction to me, <laughs> <laughs> because the other thing you've done such brilliant work on is the imagination, <laughs> and the imagination, of course, is one of those places where. It seems to me, as it were, thought happens, but it's not uh, about evidence or the empirical. Um, that, as it were, you are that you can perhaps conceive of some world or some moral possibilities that are not the consequence of a, a sort of argument about what's in front of our eyes. Well, certainly. I mean, I don't. The imagination does seem to me the, the defining characteristic of a human being as opposed to any other animal. Because um, I don't think... I, I would be prepared to say that no other animals um, have imagination. Um, they don't have this um, thing which defines human beings of um, being able to sense that there's always something else, something further, something more. Um, or indeed simply to... That's where my... Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> but mm -hmm. that's where my God bit comes in, ah. you see, Mary. You know, when you're talking about something other, something more and so forth, mm. that sense of there, I tend to, I guess, place my God understanding there, not in terms of evidence. And yeah. I agree with you, there isn't any. But, no. but in terms of the sort of imaginative, uh, um, what has um, sort of such profound, for me, profound imaginative power, yes. that, it, that it ends up winning me over. Yes, I see. I, see, I do see. But um, I think I've come to the conclusion, probably only in old age, I've come to the conclusion that... Um, I I go for the St John way of putting it, that um, loving one another uh, as opposed to hating one another, warring against one another, is the most important value that there is. Um, and that, that I, I would say, ditto to St John, God is love. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. that's the most important value. Yes. And I certainly don't need to suppose that there's a God to have created the world. Well, I'm perfectly happy to think that um, that all happens by chance, you know, one bit of the universe sparks off against another. But when you're sitting in Winchester Cathedral and they're singing some magnificent anthem at Evensong, yeah. and you are, you're carried away, yeah. your imagine is, imagination is carried away mm. into... Uh, Maybe a form of daydreaming, however you want mm. to, however you want to, however you want to put it. But there's a sense of the, the other, that's there. Is that is that is that too much of a? That's that's how I'd put it. So I'm yes. I, I'm trying I'm, to. I mean, there I am sitting in Winchester Cathedral, listening to, um, my favourite anthems, um, and it 
If I think of myself in that situation, this is why I say I love Anglicanism, I love religion, I love the whole thing. Um, it's, it's, um, I regard it as absolutely miraculous that there's, <laughs> that for instance, when um, those wonderful composers could turn their hand to writing anthems in English or writing anthems in Latin. They had this time and they had to turn their hand to one or the other, but they did it all. It was marvellous. Um, so I'm very, very um, much taken up with... Do you say the prayers, Mary, when you're, when you're there? Do I? Do you say the prayers? I mean, oh, of course you... I say the prayers. Yes, oh, I. Um, yes, I mean. You're not part... one of those who sort of sits on your hand and you're silent and you're protesting about. Uh... Um, no, um, I remember when Jeffrey, my husband, became principal of Harford College, Oxford, and that entails going <coughs> to chapel every Sunday. He um, was in two minds about. He was a complete anti-religious atheist um, um, and he was in two minds about whether he should say the prayers or whether he should button up his lips and not say them so he consulted Isaiah Berlin right. um, about what he should do and uh, Isaiah said to him well what I do is say to myself our religion teaches and then go on right, 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 right. <laughs> well I was chaplain of Wadham for oh. uh, for a while, hey, where are you uh, yes, and uh, and the um, the person who was head of house was a passionate, convinced um, uh, atheist. His his father had a sort of um, a, a, a um, I think there were altars to you know truth and and beauty and all that sort of mm. stuff. One of those sorts of convinced, and he was the, he was the most committed supporter of chapel. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very mm. good. So, I guess um, the the God thing is um, is what I wanted to you know end mm. up talking to you about, um, and you've 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 said that. Do, do you, th you 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 were saying to George that that's something you've been thinking about more and more, and wanting to get your thoughts in order about? That's right. Yes, it's true. <coughs> I've um, <coughs> I've written a long piece. Um, which sets out this theory about how God didn't come over very well from Judaism to Christianity, um, which I sent to a very favourite niece of mine, who's a, a canon of Gloucester Cathedral, for her to read. And I hoped that she would comment on it, but she didn't. She just thanked me for it, and that was oh. all. <laughs> so I feel rather sad. I shall see her soon, so I shall question her about it. <laughs> you see, I completely disagree with you about that. Yes. I think, in fact, I think that, uh, I don't think there's all that much new about the New Testament. So I have a, I have a different view about that. Yeah. I, th I think, the, uh, I think the, the New Testament is thoroughly imbued with it's um, only... uh, is the New Testament is thoroughly imbued with the with the Jewish God mm. completely, and uh, and that I mean that the that that theme of love, which is uh, is 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 actually there within the Hebrew Scriptures as well. Mm. It's not a, it's not a term that philosophers tend to. I mean, it's so it's a term that you've said is rather important. It's not a it's not a word that philosophers have 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 
Uh, Iris Murdoch was perhaps an exception to this. Yeah. But but there aren't many that have loved the word love very no, much. No, because it's so religious. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so, yes. I mean, it's, it's um, completely connect, connected with religion. And unless you're a philosopher of religion, you're not interested in religion if you're a philosopher. So... So in saying love is central to you, you're actually admitting certain admitting that's the wrong word, but there's that, that there's an acknowledgement of the, the I guess that Winchester Cathedral that's sort of stuff right. that's, yes. that's come yes. in and shaped. Yes, um, I would certainly say that. So uh, my mother's position was very curious about religion because she um, she thought it important to go to church, and she. Um, I think she went to church pretty well every Sunday of her life, either to the cathedral or to our little local village church, which was scarcely bigger than the studio, and a very lovely old church. Um, and she she took us to church when we were quite small, and I think um, our nanny was, I think, not religious at all, but what she knew backwards was a book of common prayer in terms of she herself was brought up on very much. So the, the whole language of the endangered Bible and the book of common, common prayer was right, went right through our childhood. It was very important. Do you think... Now, I've heard you, I, I've heard you talk about um, one of... It's terribly important uh, not to confuse uh, religion and ethics as if, mm. you know, all, all doing good grows out of religion. And that's just a serious and important mis- it's a It's a dangerous mistake mm. to think that being good grows out. And I agree with you completely about that. But nonetheless, do you think that, you know, the fact that we're losing our religion uh, in the West anyway mm. has any sort of moral consequence for us? Well, it's very difficult for me to answer that because I um, increasingly believe that the the point of Christianity is the concept of love, which you don't agree with, but I I agree with... I think it's central, by the way. Yeah. Well, anyway, if that's my position, then it ought to be the case that losing Christianity would mean losing this concept of um, loving one another. Um, And it may be so. It may be so. Um, I think that... um, It would be quite impossible to prove that the sort of epidemic of stabbing one another um, is anything to do with losing Christianity. You couldn't prove it, but it may be that it is connected. Funnily enough, I was thinking about the stabbing. I, I live, I'm, I'm the vicar of the Elephant and Castle in South uh, London. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I'm surrounded by, um, I mean, all these stabbings that all have happened. They're all, they're all around all, there. There's gangs where, 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 all yes, around where I am. that's right. And I'm just trying to think to myself about you know, they, there was a strong sense of community 
in these places that the church was an important part of. It wasn't just the church. Um, but that community seems to have disappeared. And, you know, gangs are, are this sort of strange gangs artificial... Gangs have taken their place. Mm. But um, if there used to be a sense of community... Um, is it just the age of the people in the gangs that is different from the sense of community? Is it that, or I mean, why aren't gangs a good thing? I see. Um, yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think they're a perversion of a good thing, actually. I mean, so I think they are a sort of good thing in so far as individuals find uh, some sort of collective. That's right. So, that's, yes. you know, alternative parenting when there are no dads around. Or things that's like. right. So there's, but there is a sort of... They're easily perverted mm. um, when they're full of, you know, younger guys, not, you know, who are in... who haven't got much money and uh, and there's other gangs and it becomes a sort of them and us type yes. of... Yes, yes. It is... The, the gang culture is really dominant in London, doesn't it? Mm, it is. And probably in other places as well. Yes, it is. Yes, it's horrible. It's horrible. And uh, I've enjoyed talking to you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I've enjoyed talking to you about yeah. religion. And you surprised me. None of that I expected. I didn't expect <laughs> to hear you say anything like that. Really? I, no, no, I didn't expect <laughs> any of that. But that was that was very good to hear and very interesting. And I look forward to reading your... Your stuff about love. How well, you get I don't it published? I, I, I don't think I shall publish it. It's not. It's the wrong length for one thing. It's, it, it's um, it's the length of an article in um, the New York Review of Books. Yeah, well, and I think anybody from the New York Review of Books listening to this should get on to Mary <laughs> Warnock <laughs> and get that published because we want to see it. Well, that Good. was a joy to to sit and talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, oh, Mary Warnock. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.